The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 3rd. In today's news, big-name Democrats embrace Joe Biden as Bernie Sanders hopes for a Super Tuesday sweep. For Bibi Netanyahu, the third election is the charm. And Chris Matthews is abruptly out at MSNBC after a string of gaffes and controversies. But first, the big idea. The coronavirus has claimed six American lives, and patients are now being treated in at least 15 states. Four deaths announced Monday and two others this weekend all occurred in Washington state, the center of the nation's most serious outbreak. Nationwide, the number of cases has now topped 100, and U.S. officials are using increasingly dire language, even as they seek to push back against waves of panic and misinformation online. Vice President Pence said at a White House news conference that we know there will be more cases, and now we're focused on mitigation of the spread as well as treatment of people that are affected. Trump administration officials stressed on Monday that the risk posed to the public by the coronavirus remains low, but they cautioned that the outbreak could change course as the disease spreads through person-to-person contact. Arizona, California, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Massachusetts, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Texas, Utah, Wisconsin, and Washington State either have confirmed cases or have been treating patients with coronavirus-like symptoms. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill negotiated late into the night last night to hash out language for a $7.5 billion emergency coronavirus spending package. The legislation will be unveiled later today, and it's expected to pass the House later this week before moving over to the Senate. At a meeting with leaders of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies yesterday afternoon, President Trump hinted that he may enact new travel restrictions on unnamed nations with large outbreaks as he touted his own administration's steps to fight the virus. The president listened and occasionally interjected to press pharmaceutical executives on how quickly a vaccine and treatments could be developed. Therapeutic human trials could begin as early as April, but a vaccine could take roughly 12 to 18 months to develop, according to the executives and federal health officials. In Texas, San Antonio leaders lambasted the CDC after the agency released a woman who later was found to have the coronavirus. The city unsuccessfully sought a temporary restraining order to prevent the release of dozens of other people scheduled to leave quarantine in the San Antonio area, and they demanded another round of tests be performed. San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg noted that the released woman, who ended up having coronavirus, visited the city's big mall, ate at the food court there, and stayed at the Holiday Inn Express near the city's airport. The woman arrived in Texas last month from Wuhan, China, and was part of the 91-person group evacuated from Asia. Worsening conditions abroad offer more troubling signs for what might lie ahead here. Schools across Japan mostly closed their doors on Monday, while South Korea said it would extend its school closures by two more weeks. The EU's internal market commissioner said the virus has already led to $1.1 billion in losses this month for the European tourism industry. British Airways canceled hundreds of flights, including a dozen between London and New York. In Iran, an advisor to the nation's supreme leader died after contracting the virus. Iraq and Egypt reported more cases, many linked to Iran. 
And Senegal confirmed its first case, marking the second one found in sub-Saharan Africa. The number of cases worldwide has now increased to about 90,000. Although in some good news, one person who does not have the virus is Pope Francis. Francis, who's been pretty unwell in recent days, has tested negative for coronavirus. He's had a cough and a fever after spending most of last Wednesday outdoors in St. Peter's Square. His doctors immediately swabbed him to conduct tests. Back here in the States, federal officials are pressuring airlines to turn over more contact information for passengers. Government officials have said they need the data so they can warn local authorities about who might have been exposed to the virus. But the industry has balked, saying the federal government should instead share information it already collects among different agencies and come up with their own system for obtaining the rest. Looking ahead, worries about medical bills and fears of lost pay may hamper efforts to slow the spread. As the test for the virus becomes more widely available, healthcare experts predict that some people with flu-like illnesses or those who may have been exposed will avoid finding out whether they have been infected because they're uninsured or they have health plans that saddle them with much of the cost of their care. The government has not yet begun to tell Americans where to go for testing, and neither public nor private insurers are changing their rules to buffer people from testing-related charges. Some preparations recommended by the CDC are incompatible with the way that health insurance benefits work. For example, officials are urging people to keep an adequate supply of their routine medicines in case they end up quarantined, but insurance companies seldom permit refills until a patient is nearly out of pills. The CDC also urges people with respiratory illnesses to stay home from work. But with no federal sick leave requirements, experts predict the virus will spread more rapidly because people will feel compelled to go to their jobs. For its part, FEMA is preparing a draft emergency declaration. FEMA officials have put together what's called an infectious disease emergency declaration that the president could sign at any time that would allow the agency to provide disaster relief funding to state and local governments, as well as mobilize pretty significant federal assistance to support the response or quarantines. Congressional leaders in Washington are preparing for the virus to infect Capitol Hill. Speaker Nancy Pelosi invited her fellow congressional leaders to a closed-door briefing yesterday to discuss a plan for congressional operations should the virus threaten Washington. There have already been conversations among senior congressional staffers about mandating that only essential staff come to work, although we're not there yet. And the Defense Intelligence Agency has directed all of its employees not to travel at all. They're the first known government agency to ban all domestic travel in the face of the outbreak, and we'll see if other federal offices issue the same guidance. And early this morning, Trump is calling on the Federal Reserve for a big interest rate cut to make up for the slowdown caused by the virus. On Twitter, he chided the Federal Reserve for not cutting interest rates, complaining that Australia's central bank cut its interest rates to half a percent, a new low for them. The Federal Reserve, along with central banks in Japan, Britain, and France, has hinted that it would be ready to step up and encourage spending. Officials from the group of seven major industrialized nations are drafting a statement on how the global economic community should handle the outbreak, with the group's finance ministers and central bank governors scheduling a conference call for later this morning. However, a leaked draft text does not make specific calls for coordinated rate cuts. The U.S. is currently the chair of the G7. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, 
a parade of establishment Democrats began coalescing around Joe Biden on Monday in an attempt to bolster the former vice president and stall Bernie Sanders' ascent as voters in 14 states cast ballots today, plus American Samoa. Amy Klobuchar dropped out and rushed to join Biden at his rally last night in Dallas. In a visual symbol of Biden's attempts to consolidate the moderates in the party, Pete Buttigieg, who dropped out Sunday night and who had an intensely frosty relationship with Klobuchar, also scrambled to get to Texas and endorse Biden. Beto O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman who ended his presidential bid in November, joined Biden on stage at the end of the Dallas rally, and then the two of them went to get dinner afterwards at a nearby Whataburger. The party's donor class also began to rally to Biden's side on Monday. A handful of key Democratic donors who were raising big bucks for Buttigieg or had considered publicly endorsing Bloomberg said they're throwing their support to Biden, and they're trying to persuade others to do so as well. There are still looming questions about Biden, his propensity for gaffes, the moments when he searches for words, or as he did yesterday, his struggle to come up with well-worn phrases. But his campaign has unmistakable momentum that it's hoping to carry into today's elections, even though he lags behind on money and organization. Not everyone is playing to his benefit, however. Senator Elizabeth Warren and former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg both pledged to stay in the race. They're fighting hard today. Bloomberg has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the primary contest and will appear on the ballot for the first time. Warren's current plan is to remain an active candidate all the way to the convention, although that could, of course, change if she loses her home state of Massachusetts, where she's on defense today. But she says her operation is built for the long haul, and she received an endorsement from Emily's List, which works to elect women in politics. Klobuchar's early exit means that her home state of Minnesota, which has 75 delegates at stake in today's primary, is up for grabs. Sanders won the caucuses there in 2016, and he'd closely trailed Klobuchar in recent polls. He held a huge rally in Minneapolis on Monday night, and now he's seen as the man to beat. Number two, in Israel's third election in a year, early results put Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing bloc two seats shy of achieving a governing majority in the 120-seat parliament, their Knesset, breaking a year-long impasse in Israeli politics. Official results are still being tabulated. They could hand his coalition an outright victory or leave it further out of reach. But the unexpectedly strong performance is a big victory for Netanyahu, who had failed to rest a governing majority in the past two votes and was indicted in November on charges of bribery, fraud, and abuse of trust. His corruption trial is scheduled to start later this month. The exit poll results come as a jarring disappointment to Netanyahu's main challenger, Benny Gantz, a ramrod straight former military chief who presented himself as the ethical antithesis of Netanyahu. While Gantz's performance as a political newcomer produced solid results in the first two elections, he fell short on Monday, although he was defiant in his concession speech, telling supporters he will fight on, whatever that means. Turnout outpaced the previous two elections, which was a big surprise for political observers in Jerusalem who predicted voters would stay away because of spiking coronavirus fears and also electoral exhaustion. The final tally puts turnout at 71%, the highest since 2015. Hundreds of voters who were in precautionary quarantine because of possible exposure to the coronavirus donned masks and gloves and went to more than a dozen special biohazard voting places staffed by paramedics. The fears of infectious diseases had been only the latest worry for an electorate anxious from nonstop politicking adding hand-washing to the hand-wringing. Number three, Chris Matthews is out at MSNBC. The long-running host of Hardball, 
announced last night that he is retiring, an abrupt exit prompted by a series of recent gaffes and controversies. The 74-year-old made the surprise announcement at the top of his weeknight program. He appeared for only about two minutes at the start of the 7 p.m. show and effectively signed off on his television career. His departure capped a week of embarrassing moments. He apologized last week for comparing Sanders's victory in the Nevada Democratic caucuses to the Nazi invasion of France. He also was criticized for a skeptical interview with Warren last week in which he asked her why she believes a female employee who sued Bloomberg accusing him of telling her to kill her unborn child. Bloomberg denied making that statement and Matthews asked Warren, why would he lie? Warren replied, why shouldn't I believe her? Then on Saturday, journalist Laura Bassett wrote on GQ.com that Matthews made inappropriate comments to her and other women when they were guests on his show. Matthews thanked viewers in his sign-off and said that compliments on a woman's appearance that some men, including him, might have once incorrectly thought were okay, were never okay. For making such comments in the past, he said he's sorry. The network immediately went to a commercial break. When the show resumed, political correspondent Steve Kornacki had taken Matthews' seat. MSNBC hasn't announced Matthews' permanent replacement, which suggests that his resignation was as sudden and unexpected as it appeared to viewers. A series of interim hosts will fill in for him in the meantime. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 3rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you live in one of the Super Tuesday states, don't forget to vote. I'll talk to you tomorrow.